In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, what is your favorite miracle that Jesus performed during his ministry? Do you even have one? I, I know that might sound like sort of a pedestrian question with which to begin a sermon, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to be going over a series of Jesus' miracles these next couple of weeks, and I'm actually interested more so in the why. What is your favorite miracle that Jesus performed and why? Because I think there sometimes is a connection between the miracles of Jesus that we are drawn to and the particular things in our lives that we are experiencing. Something that scratches the particular itch of whatever it is that you are currently enduring. So for example, if somebody in your life, a loved one, or maybe even you yourself, are struggling with some health issues, or battling some sort of disease or some debilitating thing, then maybe you are drawn to the miracles where Jesus heals people. Because it gives you great comfort and confidence that Jesus also has the power and the ability to heal you or your loved one. Or maybe your struggles are not physical as much as they are spiritual. Maybe you are constantly struggling with temptation and doubt and worries. And so you like to see those times when Jesus speaks with such great authority over the devil himself as he casts out evil spirits. Or maybe you're someone who has more of an analytical mind. Maybe you're, 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 you're drawn to the scientific. You like the order of nature and the way that God created things to just make sense. And so the miracles that you are drawn to are those ones where Jesus does the thing that is contrary to the laws and rules of nature. So when Jesus walks on water, or when he calms a storm, or when he turns water into wine. What's your favorite miracle? And what about this one that we have in front of us today? Jesus feeds 5,000 families with just a sack lunch. And what kind of category would you put a miracle like that even into? Did you know that this is the only miracle that is recorded in addition to Easter Sunday and Jesus rising from the dead, that this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I'm not going to say that it's his favorite miracle, but the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired all of Holy Scripture and that he included it in all four Gospels, I think has to tell you at least the fact that he considers this one pretty darn important. Why? Well, when we meet Jesus here in Matthew chapter 14, to give you a little bit of context, Jesus is struggling with something himself at the moment. If you take a look at the Gospel reading, you notice that we kind of had this very abrupt intro it said, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately 
to a solitary place. Well, what had just happened? Well, Jesus found out that his friend, his co-worker, his cousin, the forerunner that God sent to prepare hearts and minds and lives for the arrival of Jesus, John the Baptist, had just been killed. You see, King Herod, I guess you could call him a king. Technically he was, but he was a puppet king. The guy who was kind of the ruler over the area of Galilee, he started to have an affair with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist called him on it and called him to repent. Shocker, King Herod wasn't all that excited about him being called to repentance and neither was his new girlfriend. And so instead of repenting of their sin, they decided to have John beheaded. That's the news that Jesus had just heard. You know, in the Creed we confess each week that Jesus is true man. That along with his, with his, uh, and along with his humanity, Jesus felt the pain of losing a loved one. He felt the sting of death and all the sadness that goes with it. And as people who have experienced that kind of pain and loss, you know exactly why Jesus wanted to be alone. But as Jesus' reputation grew, and as word continued to spread of his power and his preaching, the one thing that people were not willing to do was to leave Jesus alone. The crowds of people were coming out of town after town and just following Jesus. This particular day, they, they saw Jesus out in the boat on the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee, and they walked halfway across around the sea on the shoreline and met him over on the other side, trying to coerce Jesus to come and be with them on the shore. What, what would you do if you were in Jesus' position? In the midst of mourning and death, it can be extremely comforting to be surrounded by friends and family for a time. But it's also nice sometimes to just be alone. But here we're not talking about this close group of friends and family who wanted to be around Jesus. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to 20,000 people who just wanted to be near Jesus that day and people who not just wanted to be near him, but people who all wanted something from Jesus. Jesus, I got a favor to ask. Jesus, we need a miracle here. I got somebody who's sick. My wife is hurt. Whatever it was, everybody wanted Jesus to do something for them. What would you do? Well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus comes to them. And did you hear why? When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. Mark, in his gospel, when he tells this same account, adds a little bit of more of context. He says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wanted to be alone. But he also knew that people needed him. They were sick. 
and they needed Jesus to heal them. They were lonely and afraid and they needed Jesus to, uh, they needed to know that someone cared. And they would eventually, later this day, become hungry. And whether they knew it at the time or not, Jesus would eventually need to be the one who would feed them. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. The disciples, who so often saw themselves as the caregivers of Jesus, always trying to protect him from people, are at it again. You know, whether it was the children that they tried to shoo away from Jesus, thinking that he had more important things to do, or whether it was trying to keep the sick and the diseased away from Jesus so that he would not become ceremonially unclean, or whether it was just simply trying to send a large crowd of hungry people home so that they could get their next meal, the disciples time after time failed to grasp the amazing compassion Jesus has for people. And so Jesus compassionately suggests to the disciples something else. They don't need to go away. You feed them. Okay. Great idea, Jesus. There's only one problem. Here's what we have, five loaves of bread and two fish, and here is what we need. Mark, again in his gospel, tells us that the disciples even did the math. It would take eight months' wages to feed this many people. Do you really want us to go and spend that much on bread? You can almost picture Judas, right, who was in charge of the money, kind of clenching the money bag of the disciples a little tighter. Not a chance, Jesus. It's impossible. And even if it were possible, it's a waste. Just tell them to go home. What's the problem? It's baffling, isn't, isn't it? Now, the people who are supposed to know Jesus best, who are closest to him, are the ones who tend to know him sometimes the least. The crowds of people ran along the shore, some of them up to 15 miles that morning, just to see Jesus. Because they knew that Jesus not only had the power to help them, but he also was willing to help them. But the disciples, who just up to this point in Matthew's Gospel have already seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law, a man with leprosy, another man who was paralyzed, two blind men, cast out multiple demons, raise a dead girl, heal another woman, and heal however many countless people earlier that very same day, those same disciples for the life of them cannot imagine a solution to their problem. It's baffling when other people don't trust Jesus. So what should we call it when we fail to trust Jesus? Why are we, people who claim to know Jesus best, who have been given that name, that treasured name, Christian, we who have been brought close to him by faith, who have been repeatedly touched by his power and compassion, why are we so quick to doubt him? 
disciples had a problem. And it was one for which they could see no solution. And if they could not see a solution, then there probably wasn't one that existed. And tell me that that is not a situation and a scenario that you know all too well. I'm not going to pretend to know all of the specific problems that you are currently facing, but I do know that many of you are under a considerable amount of stress. Many of you are suffering from anxiety and guilt that is absolutely overwhelming you. Others of you feel the pain that only death can cause, pain that you feel like just has no end in sight. Your marriage is breaking or it's broken, and there's no, seemingly no way to fix it, and you doubt at this point that it would even make a difference if you tried. Others of you are wrestling with an addiction, an opponent that seems impossible to overcome. Maybe your diagnosis looks bleak, the doctors are stumped, you're unemployed, or maybe you are employed, but when you get your paycheck, it sure feels like you're unemployed. There are people close to you that cause you so much anger and frustration that you just want Jesus to send them away. Overwhelming. No end in sight. No way to fix it. Impossible to overcome. Does any of this sound familiar? Are we really that foolish to think that these are areas of our lives for which Jesus has no care or no cure? Do we really know Jesus as well as we claim to know him? Do you want to know why this is my favorite miracle of Jesus? Which is why I asked the question at the beginning. Because I think that this is his most unnecessary miracle. Think about it. Jesus could have easily done exactly what the disciples said. He could have sent the people away home hungry. And so what? This wasn't a matter of life and death. It wasn't even one of those, I once was blind, but now I see moments. No. The crowd could have easily gone home, gotten food, and no one in the history of humanity has ever died because they missed one dinner. So why does Jesus not only insist that the people stay? Why does he insist that the disciples are the ones who feed them? Well, you see, brothers and sisters, this is something that you and I need to learn about Jesus and the way that he deals with and operates and interacts with us in our lives. The situation did not creep up on Jesus. It wasn't that he lost track of time or didn't realize people would eventually get hungry. Jesus kept the crowd there all day in order to create a need the need for food. He told the disciples to feed them, something they were incapable of doing in order to create another need, the need for the disciples to wrestle with it. And why does Jesus create these needs? <clears throat> so that exhausted of all other options, Jesus himself could fill that need with a simple invitation. 
Bring them here to me. Jesus created a need both for the crowd and for the disciples because he wanted them all to know that the compassion Jesus has for people sees, understands, and supplies for all your needs. So what need has Jesus created in your life lately? What difficulty has he allowed to come into your life that he might give you his gracious invitation? Bring it here to me. How long have you been working and stressing and thinking and trying to come up with a solution only to be left baffled? How long have you been holding on to five loaves of bread and two fish out of of options of what to do with them? Bring them here to me, Jesus says. Can you imagine the amount of stress and guilt, anger and defeat, anxiety and tears we would be spared of if we actually trusted Jesus to do what he has the power to do? The disciples' problem would not have been a problem, and neither would yours. Now, I'm not downplaying the reality of your pain. And I'm not telling you that here is the simple three-step rule to follow if you want to get rid of all pain and suffering and disappointment for the rest of your life. No. No, to trust in Jesus in the face of suffering is no small matter. In fact, when the divine inspired word of God tries to describe what it's like for a sinful fallen human being to trust the word of God over and against the pain and suffering we're experiencing, the Bible says, you know what, here's what it'll feel like and maybe even look like. It'll feel like you're carrying a cross. Nor am I saying that there is a way to live life without experiencing hardship or suffering because you will. Brothers and sisters, I simply want you to know how powerful and gracious and compassionate and merciful your Savior truly is. Did you catch what we said in the prayer of the day earlier at the beginning of the service? Do not overlook those words each week. Take that ready-made prayer home and repeat it. Memorize it. Pray it again and again. These prayers that have been uttered by the, the people of God, some of them for hundreds of years, others for over a thousand years, like today's. Today's prayer, which comes, dates all the way back to the 500s A.D., And here's what for over 1,500 years God's people have been praying. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and willing to give far more than we either desire or deserve. You know what that prayer is saying? That when Jesus comes to you and me in his word and he gives us that gracious invitation, bring them here to me, he's not like a frustrated father. He doesn't say it out of anger. He doesn't say it out of a lack of patience. Oh, give it to me and let me do it already. 
He says it because he is genuinely filled with eagerness and joy to serve you with his grace. Jesus doesn't simply feel sorry for you when you are hungry or hurting or helpless. He loves you with such compassion. He longs to show you such grace and mercy that it drove him all the way to a cross. Jesus shows you his greatest power in dying and rising for you. He shows you his most merciful love in forgiving your sins. Look again at all those words we heard St. Paul say in our second reading from Ephesians 1. He stacks them up right on top of each other. He says, here's what God has done for you. You are blessed. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are predestined. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. Can you even begin to fathom how much God has invested in you? How much He has invested in your eternal well-being And if this is what he does for you spiritually, if this is what he has done to win your salvation, if this is what he has done to take care of and to protect your soul, then why in all the world would you think that he does not care about your body, does not care about you physically, about your life here and right now? His love for you crushes all doubt. It relieves your stress. His love removes your guilt and defeats death and the pain that it causes. His love fixes and strengthens marriages. It overcomes addictions. It heals all wounds. And it provides for all of your daily needs. His love even causes you to love and serve others when all you want to do is be left alone. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. You know, one of the more common misunderstandings I often hear from people is that they have this assumption that if God commands you to do something, well, then you must have the ability to do it. That if God says, do this, then I just have to dig down deep spiritually, muster up the strength, and just focus. But think about it. How much spiritual fortitude or willpower would it have taken for the disciples to eventually on their own have come up with enough food to to feed 20,000 people? So why then does Jesus give the command? Jesus tells them to feed the crowd in order to drive them back to Jesus who himself will do the very thing that he commanded them to do. Despite all their doubts, It would be the disciples who would feed the crowd. Not by their own power or ability, but by taking the miracle from Jesus' hands and placing it into the hands of the crowd. And despite their doubts, Jesus still uses weak, sinful men to feed you as well. 
In mercy, he calls pastors to shepherd you, to feed you, not by their own power or ability, but by taking the miracle of Christ's compassion and applying it to you and your family. Jesus continues to feed thousands upon thousands, not by multiplying bread and fish, but by pouring out his body and blood held by human hands and placed into yours. He calls pastors to comfort and strengthen you with the word of Christ. From his lips to your ears, I forgive you all your sins, and they are. Despite your doubts and weaknesses and troubles, the Lord uses you in daily vocations. Your daily vocation is husband or wife, or father, or mother, or son, or daughter, or employer, or employee, or citizen, neighbor, or friend, to be the hands through which God feeds people. Actually, physically, or feeds them with care and compassion. He, he uses you to be the ears through which he hears confessions, and fears, and worries. And then he uses you to be the mouth through which he speaks his forgiveness and peace. This is my favorite miracle. The most unnecessary miracle Jesus ever performed. Though it might have been unnecessary for the crowd of people, they would have been fine without dinner. It was necessary for Jesus. His love and compassion made it necessary. As it was for the crowd, brothers and sisters, so it is for you. Bring them here to me. Knowing that Jesus came to supply for your greatest need on the cross, may you be strengthened and encouraged to approach him with your every single need. In the name of Jesus, amen.